Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, there are a great many things that are good about being a Christian in America, despite what the headlines say. Uh, But perhaps one of the best things about being a Christian in America is that we have religious liberty. And so religious liberty is part of our Constitution, is part of the First Amendment, uh, that government shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And America is really one of the pioneers in the Western world when it came to disestablishment and the separation of church and state, uh, while still having a a culture and society that was uh, broadly religious. Uh, In the old world, uh, the church was more uh, political and parochial, and so there were certain denominations that oversaw like different uh, areas, and they would get government tax money uh, to run their operations, and they would oversee people in a certain area, which sounds great. The only problem is is, is if you disagreed with that denomination, you had no freedom uh, of religious expression. Uh, so what America and the American Constitution did was to give no tax money to church operations and allowed churches to operate uh, freely, that there was no established church, uh, there were no laws governing uh which church would operate where, and so people could worship or not worship uh, freely and diversely. Uh, But an interesting happened when we did that, because instead of the church being parochial and really institutional, uh, it became more um, entrepreneurial and uh, market-driven, because in order to have a church, you needed to convince people to come to your church. Like, it wasn't just a given that you had this institutional sway uh, you you really had to convince people to come to your church. And so while America has been marked by uh, religious liberty, uh, Christian churches in America have often been marked by the principles of capitalism. And that's because when we democratized religious affiliation through disestablishment, uh, we basically created a free market economy of religion. And in many ways, uh, as a result, 200 years later, churches are often run like a business and church leaders, even when they're not really intending to, they tend to think in business terms. And so that's what I want to talk about today on a rare night recording of the podcast. So if it gets a little strange, that's why we're recording at night and not during the day because scheduling conflicts happened and we had to do it after bedtime. Uh, but what I wanted to talk about is... So if Dale falls asleep on you, yeah, you know why. Halfway through, if you just hear me just leave the Smart. podcast. Yeah. Uh, what I want to talk about today is, uh, is there anything good about that? The nature of church being more business-like in America? What is bad about that? Uh, and what are the unique challenges that come from trying to be a Christian and build the church uh, in a capitalistic and an increasingly pluralistic uh, society. So that's the conversation I want to have today, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. 
I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So we know that the church isn't a business. It is a people. It is the body of Christ. It is the representation of God's heavenly kingdom on earth, and we are ambassadors for Christ. Um, but in America, the way that our governmental system is set up, the way our economy is set up, it just kind of tends to uh, put the church in an orientation towards uh, kind of market-driven forces. Uh, and so, Tamara, how do you kind of see capitalism and entrepreneurship uh, being an integral part of the American church culture, whether for good or for ill? I think there's a number of ways that you see this played out. And it's because the reality is it takes money to run a church. Um, it takes money to like keep the lights on, to rent a building, to uh, rent chairs, whether you have your own building or you're leasing it. Like running a church requires money, right? So because of that very simple fact, um, pastors and uh, church members and church leaders uh, have to find a way to cover the expenses of the church. Um, and because of the society we live in and you don't get money from the government, you have to ask for money from your congregation. And uh, that also means you need to actually have a congregation and you need to have a sizable amount of money from those congregants being uh, donated so that you can cover the cost. Um, like that's just the reality of it. And because of that, you have church members, uh, church leaders, particularly having to think from a more marketing perspective. Um, and I know um, a lot of people don't like the idea of that. I've heard people like say, you don't ask for money, you just pray and the Holy Spirit will bring it, um, which is a completely different conversation of <laughs> like, do you literally do nothing at all and just pray that the Holy Spirit will drop money out of the sky for you, which he he can do, right? Like he can have somebody just anonymously donate exactly the amount you need and you never asked for it. Like those things happen too, but I think we are also called to steward like the brains we've been given and actually like put effort into these types of things. Um, so I think there's obviously a number of um, terrible ways that this is done and uh, a lot of misuse of the church as this like corporation, as a marketing money making machine. And I think we've seen a lot of mega churches who um, turn money that was given as donations, um, into just this profitable business for a very select few at the top of that business, meaning like the lead pastor and his 
like favorite staff members. Right. right? So you've definitely seen the ill side of this. Um, I do think there is some benefit. uh, And a bit of that is the call to have your congregation like join in with you in the movement of your church. Um, But the strategies you take sometimes feel a little bit more like the ways of the world, right? In terms of like how you raise that money. Right, because a lot of our KPIs are butts, budgets, and buildings. Right. The three Bs, because those are the things that are going to keep you, for lack of better terms, in business. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough spot for a pastor to be in because there is a very real reality that you need money coming into your church and the way that you measure it at least currently and the way that it's been done for so long is like you said the number of people sitting in your seats the actual buildings like how many buildings do you have what's the cost of these buildings like there's just a lot of um real elements of uh operating a church that feel very similar to business because of the way that we're set up in america Right, yeah, because when it comes to the logistics of running a church, and particularly a church that's going to make a community-wide impact in America, there are a lot of business-like things that you're going to need to think through. Like, you have to make sure that you set up uh, your church as a 501c3 and get all your legal ducks in a row uh, so that people can uh, you know, have a, a tax write-off for their donations. Um, you need to buy or lease a building, you need insurance, you need equipment. Um, even if there's only one person on staff, you know, your lead pastor, uh, you still need to figure out, uh, payroll and medical benefits and like all those kinds of things. And certainly you could run some kind of like house church model, uh, that would, uh, avoid all of this by not really being, uh, an institutional structure or an institutional force, um, and I think there are certain um, groups that are uh, moving towards that. I don't think it represents a, a very large constituency in the American church, but that's certainly a way you could go. But by and large, the way that our society is set up, if you want to be a visible, tangible presence of the church in a community, it's going to take a lot of business uh, acumen. It's a bit of an operation. Um, and even like when you think about like, staffing like as your church grows uh, you're going to need to figure out how to hire and manage staff and the church is largely run by unpaid volunteers and it's been that way since the first century and you know there even churches that are larger are you know largely run by unpaid volunteers Uh, but then you get to a certain operational size and you need uh, someone to devote themselves to a particular set of tasks or a, a particular area of leadership or responsibility um, and you need them to come on, whether part-time or full-time. And really, that can become the tricky part because uh, it's not quite a business situation, but when you bring someone on staff, it's not a purely organic relationship anymore at that point. And I've seen this done really well. I've seen some cases where it's gone really poorly. I think in the cases where it's gone poorly, uh, there's either like this implicit or explicit pressure that uh, once you're a staff member, or if you want to be a staff member, uh, you you need to, you know, if you're part-time, you need to work full-time. And if you're full-time, you need to work fuller time uh, in order to um, be granted leadership in that uh, church. And a lot of times there's there's a carrot out there that you don't actually ever end up getting and you 
are financially struggling and, you know, putting all this effort forward. Um, and to be sure, like, since it is not just a business, there can be a healthy aspect of someone serving beyond what their paid position is. And that can be totally healthy and normal and, and is healthy and normal in a lot of situations. Uh, but wherever church leaders are trying to uh, get as much juice as they can out of every lemon, that can become toxic. Where the church becomes all about brand, that can be toxic. Uh, that can steamroll a lot of people where you are not just trying to start a movement of people who are following Jesus, even though that's your stated goal. And when you start out, maybe that was your actual goal. But then uh, it can start to look less like a movement, uh, less like an institutional representation of the kingdom of God and more like a financial empire, particularly, um, you know, with the rise of celebrity pastors, you know, the the worship music industry is a huge money-making endeavor, um, and, you know, churches are using worship songs uh, written and produced by other churches that maybe have weird teachings or have abusive structures themselves. And so it's like this whole weird economy built up around these things that in their purest form are tools of the mission of Jesus, but when they are kind of put through the grid of these business structures, uh, they can be um, really toxic. And I think uh, one of the big ones, and I think a lot of um, documentaries have brought this up, I think the documentaries about Hillsong, whether it was uh, Secrets of Hillsong or what was the other one? Uh, Megachurch Exposed. And uh, they talked to like these volunteers who were working like, 20, 40, 60, 80 hours of unpaid labor every week for the opportunity to like be a part of this uh, when really they were being exploited for their skill and their labor. And so for you, Tamara, what do you think are the do's and the don'ts, the red flags and the green flags, or even just like the beige flags <laughs> of like when it comes to church staffing? I might be slightly biased in my response. Um, I'm biased in all my responses well, about everything. Because I've seen you on staff at a church and seen, you know, other people who are on staff at church. And there kind of is this understanding that's like the unsaid statement in a lot of situations that you're on staff, you get paid uh, less than the minimum, and you work as if uh, you have two full-time jobs at the church. Um, and so I've seen a lot of times, unfortunately, where there's a, a misuse and even an abuse of church staff members um, for the sake of saying like, hey, we're, we're a nonprofit. Like we can't do these types of things because you understand that we're, our money, our income side of things comes in through the support of the members of the church. And so certainly like, it's not all about the money, but I do think that um, people who are on staff at a church should be taken care of as best as possible. Uh, we shouldn't try and be um, <laughs> the body of Christ and say, well, you get the bare minimum of like even the state does better than what the church does. Right. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, in In whatever ability the church has to care for their staff with insurance with pto with 
um, you know, 401k with whatever benefits that will help the flourishment of that staff member, knowing that not only are they giving their time and their their skills and their resources and their energy, but also their passion for the sake of the kingdom of God. Uh, why would we not want to take care of those people? Why would we not want to honor them um, in a very real way instead of just like verbal accolades of like, wow, you did so great. You've you've been here seven nights a week and like you get paid five dollars an hour. Like, let's actually care for the people that we're hiring. And I understand that there are a lot of logistical challenges to like offering benefits packages, offering a PTO, offering 401k, like matching what businesses do. But I'm just such a firm believer in caring for the people on your staff. And huge red flags are, yeah, if if you're, you're never getting a pay raise and you're um, continually asked to show up and be present at just about every event at the church um, and working far more hours than, you know, part-time or full-time, I think those are huge red flags that the structure that's happening within that church is not healthy for you. Um, and it's very likely that you're being taken advantage of or even possibly abused. Yeah. It's this weird kind of uh, balance because the church is not a money-making endeavor. And wherever the church is a money-making endeavor for any party involved, um, it like has that's, a, a, that's an issue. It has a deleterious effect on yes. discipleship. Uh, at the same time, if you're being asked to devote yourself to this ministry, then um, you need to be supported in that and supported well enough. I mean, I've known staff members who have worked on uh, staff at a church who weren't even getting paid enough to be able to live in the community of the church that they're serving. Right. Because the median income of that uh, community is higher uh, considerably yeah. than what that person is making. They they have to live two, three cities over because that's where it's cheaper so that they can continue to work uh, at that church or, like you said, just working these long hours. And it's like this weird kind of thing because, you know, pastors and church leaders will say stuff, you know, all the time like this is this is not a job. This is the mission. This is not a career. This is a lifestyle. And yes, that's that's all fine and good. It's true. Um, but at the same time, uh, that language can be used to manipulate, particularly when um, there are people uh, at the top of that church structure who do have a lot of business acumen and are business leaders, and they do know how to squeeze every bit of juice out of the lemon to make your your processes as lean as possible so that you can make budget and you can uh, keep that bottom line healthy. I think on the other side, though, it, it's difficult because it's like church leaders shouldn't be like union workers. You know what I mean? Like it shouldn't yeah. be like, yeah. oh, it's 12 o'clock. We got to go to lunch. And like that's I don't you know, lift a finger past this or this right. or that or whatever, yeah. um, because then it's transactional on mm -hmm. that person's mm -hmm. side where they're treating the church like it's a business right? because they're saying, I'm not going to do any more than what I am, you know, uh, in my contract paid to do. And so it's like this, it's just like this, it, it's this interesting, weird balance where it's like, um, I don't know, go, going into business with your family. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like, yeah. because well, this is your spiritual community. Mm -hmm. Um, you have, 
needs that need to be supported uh, within reason, uh, both on the high end and the low end within yes. the reason. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, wherever it becomes transactional, that's where things get weird. Either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and I think that's a good point if you start to sense it's transactional, but that's really hard to pin sometimes as well, right? <laughs> it's like, more what... it's more a vibe. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's a, it's like, the, there's the, some wind, just... the wind blowing in a certain direction a lot of times. Yeah, there's just some discernment behind it. And you know what it feels like to even in many ways be told, but not explicitly told that everything is mandatory for you to show up at. Uh, You know, you've been there actually already nine hours and then there's an evening event. And so by the end of it, you've really worked about 12 hours and that's something that you're doing on the regular. And that's just your Wednesday. And that's right. Like that's just Wednesday. That's just Sunday. That's just, you know, uh, Thursday. That's Monday. Um, And even the idea of days off because church it like happens on Sunday. So obviously you don't get Sunday off. Um, But I've even seen people who work Monday through Sunday constantly and there are zero days off or maybe they'll get Saturday off, but essentially they're working six days a week. Unless there's an event on Saturday. Unless there's an event on Saturday. You have an outreach event on Saturday and then you're at church on Sunday and then you're back to the office Monday through Friday. Yeah. There's a sense of um, balance that needs to be had from the person who's on staff and the person who's leading the staff, right? Like there needs to be health for all parties involved, the expectations, um, the obligations, and is it really healthy for you to be working 12-hour days, four to five days a week? What about your family? Like, what about friends? Like, you're at that point, you're just not allowed to have any other life apart from the church. Um, and then to top it off, you know, everyone in your congregation is... I don't know, let's just say they're all driving Mercedes and you're over here like in your 1990 Honda Civic. Like it's just, right. you should at least be able to live um, a life that is uh, within the community that your church is in. Yeah. You made me think of another thing just on the dynamic of the person working at the church who might not necessarily be like in an emotionally healthy place. And so even if there isn't a real explicit or even a really strong implicit uh expectation placed upon them by church leadership uh, to overwork yeah. uh, this misguided sense of duty that mm-hmm. causes them to do that because they are working for the church. And right. like, maybe there's like some guilt associated with being supported by that. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. some misplaced guilt. Uh, and yeah. that, so you end up overworking yourself, but then the people who are leading you are like, well, they just keep, they like to do it. So we're going to let them do yeah. it because it kind of benefits us in a way right. that they're working you know, 60 hours a week and we're paying them, you know, $15,000 a year, uh, that, that they're our best asset, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's Mm -hmm. just like a lot of those weird things that, um, if we look at it purely by the numbers, it's going to get in a really unhealthy place. So like discipleship needs Mm -hmm. to be placed at the forefront of that, that we care about the health of the people who are in the pews. We care about the health of the people who are on the stage. We care about the health of the people who are working in the office. Yeah. Uh, Everybody that we are um, a part of this movement that has some um, logistics attached to it Mm -hmm. that do involve finances and things like that. Um, And we need to care for those things wisely 
um, but also um, discipleship and spiritual health and nourishment and growth um, in pursuit of the mission. Um, like those are the priorities and not just um, the mission to the expense of everybody involved on the mission right. or even where the mission gets distorted mm-hmm. to where we need bigger buildings, we need right. bigger budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you end up just trampling on you know people who willingly volunteer but not really realizing that they're being taken advantage of by people who are not caring for them well. Well, and that's where you can even have like spiritual abuse happening. I think this is the dynamics that it's most often seen in is uh, there's this like unsaid understanding that you are all in it for Christ. If you're willing to, you know, work 60 hours a week for less than minimum wage and part time. Right. Like somehow that makes you um, someone who's really abiding by the gospel. Right. Because you, You'll do anything to be present for the congregation. You'll do anything to be present for the needs of the church. Like what else um, could be more important than the needs of the church? And like that's just spiritual abuse because that's not actually the way that Christ has called us to be. And certainly you can't look into scripture and find a passage that's going to talk about the dynamics of what we're dealing with right now because there was just no language for that within the first century there was just no understanding of church in this way at all and um that makes it more difficult because i think people can get away with just being toxic and abusive um and i think there's also aspects that are unintentional there might be people that are leading out of fear of like what if we can't pay the bills like the only way to do it is to work these two staff members to the ground right. in order to make sure that we can continue to run every Sunday. And like the challenge of that is real. How many churches close a year? Uh, a lot of them more and, than open. And a lot of that is what finances, right? You just, I mean, that's really that's the main reason they why, close like, is because they else, can't pay the bills anymore. Yeah. And they can't pay the bills because people aren't showing up. It, it's, it's not likely that, um, you know, you have, a packed service and you are still not able to pay the bills. It happens in certain communities where they don't have the resources themselves to give above and beyond to the church. Um, But I think for the most part within America, um, you have churches that are full that are able to at least contribute to the needs of the church um, to make sure that it's, it's running and like the, electric bill is paid yeah and then it's also able to serve the community through yeah um whatever uh humanitarian efforts outreach efforts that those are organized by this institution this Mm -hmm. business-like entity Mm -hmm. that is serving as a i guess a sort of corporate hand of jesus through the collective efforts and the collective resources i mean that's really when the church is at its best well, that's uh, and what when they it's at its worst be. is when it's, it's butts and doing, budgets. Yes, that's what, I was, that's what I was thinking is absolutely that sounds like a healthy Cause church. Because ba- bare minimum is the lights are paid. Yes, but, which there's a lot of churches, I believe, in America that that is their reality every every week, week in and week out. Like That's where they're at, and that's why we're seeing so many churches who can't even do that are closing because they just weren't able to 
have enough funds. Right, yeah. And so it's complicated. It's complicated because we want to do good, but there's a lot of logistics involved. And you can't just get rid of the logistics. And yeah, and but when we focus on purely maximizing the logistics, we get to a really toxic place. Right. And when you focus on, uh, I, I really want this to come out right. But when you focus on like, we're only here for the mission of Christ. We don't care about any of the other like. We don't care. Actual- we are going to save people's lives and we don't care how many people we have to kill to do it. Yeah. Is, you know, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. So the, the church has kind of taken on a a business-like nature, for better or for worse, in America. But what's also interesting is that not only has the church created kind of a business structure, but there is also like a lot of other, I guess, cottage industries that have cropped up around American evangelicalism that kind of buttress the church. Uh, And I want to talk about those, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. So not only is the church tended to run like a business, there are also actually for-profit businesses that spring up from the church, are in some ways supported by the church, and exist for the church in kind of this ecosystem of businesses. I mentioned the, uh, the, the worship music industry, huge moneymaker. Uh, it it's just multi million dollar the the records they sell the uh, concerts they they sell out the uh, the way that they can license their music and other churches uh, use it. Um, there's obviously a lot of spiritual good that can come out of that, but it, it's a it's a money making enterprise. It's a business, right? And then the other one is uh, that's interesting to me is like in the American church, uh, there's like also like this cottage industry of like leadership content. And there's like so much leadership content out there uh, that it, it to this point it's com- becoming its own or not becoming has become its own uh, industrial complex onto itself. Like there's books, there's podcasts, there's blogs, there's conferences all about leadership. And so like business leaders, they talk to church leaders about how to organize their churches better. And then there are mega church pastors who become leadership gurus and speak to business leaders about how they can run their organizations better. And they all have conferences together and make lots of money. And that's a really cynical way to put it, um, but that's kind of you know what happens. And there's a lot of good stuff there. There's a lot of people being equipped. Um, but it's interesting to me that it is this very large uh, money-making enterprise, especially when you have the conferences and then you have the celebrity uh, worship leaders uh, singing their songs, which then become popularized in the churches, and the money is flowing all kinds of different ways, not to mention the fact that you know when you get into this mega church pastor world who become leadership gurus, there's book deals, the book deals create money, they create notoriety, they get funneled back into the mega church so they can get more buildings and they can get more butts and it's like this whole like ecosystem that is very much market driven. Um, but what are your thoughts on like the leadership content industry that seems to exist uh, in tandem with the evangelical church? It makes me uncomfortable the amount of money <laughs> these leaders are making. Um, and it's not to say that maybe they don't have good skills in the world of leadership, but 
I would imagine the amount of money these kind of kinds of people are making and the amount of conferences there are and books there are that we would just have like better Christian leaders in our <laughs> world and we don't. I like, we have scandals. We have and just scandals and scandal scandals. after scandal. So I think if if we're learning anything in this season is that this is not the model of Christ. Uh, it's not to say that these things are inherently evil, but I think that they have led to um, the misrepresentation of Christ. And there's just a, a lot of sin that has been exposed through people that like begin to build their empire in this kind of a way. I can't think of a particular person right now who has built such a great empire around their podcasts, their blogs, their books, their conferences. And um, there isn't some type of scandal attached to it somehow. Yeah, I mean, probably case in point would be Bill Heibold's of Willow Creek. Yeah. Huge megachurch, yeah. global leadership summit. Right. One of the premier leadership events in the world. Yeah. Uh, and then Bill Heibold has all of these uh, sexual misconduct yeah, allegations I, brought against him. He's out, but, you know, those, those things are still operating. Yeah. And... Uh, Honestly, it's not that leadership isn't important because it certainly is. And a lot of the people who are producing this content are like really strong communicators, really brilliant, really gospel centered. Um, But then there is a lot of it also that is kind of like Tony Robbins-esque kind of sell a million books kind of a deal. Yeah. And what is really the heart behind these things? Um, And as I was starting to say earlier, leadership in and of itself is not the main focus of the gospel, right? We are called to make disciples and I wish we could see more of these types of things that are actually discipleship driven and can show some type of fruit of Christians that are actually being transformed in the way that they live out their daily lives, rather than just trying to become the next great leader who has the next great platform with the amazing books and the amazing blog and the amazing podcast, because what is the goal of all of that? If not money. Right. I mean, more than money, probably prestige. You have money, you have influence, you have prestige, you have, you know, authority, but is that what really any leader of God should be after? Like, is that what their focus should be? I imagine when they first started within ministry, that wasn't their hope. Like, that wasn't their passion. That wasn't their heart was to be the next great leader within the Christian evangelical world so that they can teach other leaders. Right. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, it's a double-edged sword because there's a lot of stuff that I've learned from leadership content about, you know, how to lead well and help others in the church to lead well so that you can uh, advance the mission and to but do that in healthy ways. But how does it become such a massive industry within Christian evangelicalism? And again, yet yeah, we don't have like a massive amount of great leaders. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we it, it's not working. We have leadership conferences, but we don't have very many discipleship conferences or evangelism conferences uh, yeah. or those types of things. Um, I'm just thinking of what has come out in terms of like the big things like it's leadership. Leadership is the, the theme that American evangelicals really like right now. 
that is where you're getting the books, you're getting the um, conferences, you're getting the podcast. A lot of people don't really want to read a book on discipleship. Right. Like, let's be honest. They don't want to hear a podcast. They don't because that really gets deep within who you are. And I think, unfortunately, that is one of the big um, holes within the American church right now is we have a lot of people sitting in our churches. We have a lot of people taking in content. You can now listen to 10 different pastors on a Sunday, but when you actually sit down and talk to believers, um, I'm not sure we are being discipled. Hmm. We're just being led. We're, <laughs> we're just, yeah, we're just being led and we can take in all the content in the world, but that's not actually changing our heart. Right. Yeah. What and I don't think Christ meant for it to be that way. I think it was meant to be a little bit more one-on-one instead of just massive intake of content. Right. Yeah. Sorry, you were trying to say something. Yeah. What do you think about like the marketing aspect of all this, both in the leadership circle and the worship circle, and then just in the general church circle? Like, um, how keen should churches be on marketing principles? I and just full disclosure, I say this as someone who right. has worked in marketing, um, both in the church and outside the church. How keen should churches be on marketing, and what are the dangers of a really slick? church marketing strategy so i'm not as fluent in marketing strategies as you are but that's a bit of some of what i do as well and so i understand the importance of marketing especially in the day and age that we live in like if you're a church um and you're not able to engage your community where they are which most of them are on social media like that's where they're that's where they're at. That's where you're meeting them, which is really weird to say you're meeting people digitally, but you can actually meet people digitally that will end up showing up at your church. And so I think there is something to be said about churches being aware of marketing and utilizing the marketing that's available to them because we live in a digital world and um it's just not the way that it used to be. You can't just have like the lead pastor knocking on people's doors. Like it's kind of creepy now. Right. You, so how they, they think you're Mormon when you do that. Yeah. yeah. Not Mormon. Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Sorry. Witness. Uh, Sorry, Mormons. I didn't mean to besmirch your name. Yeah. So um, it's just not the way that we function anymore. So I think there is something to be said about the church finding ways to uh, interact with people within their zip code. In a way that's not like foreign and creepy and weird, we can actually be up to date on engaging people around us. And the reality of it is social media, like, and that's a huge marketing platform. Um, now, are you really diving deep into the Facebook ads and the Instagram ads and like making reels and doing all of this and that? I don't think that you need to be an expert in those things. Um, I actually don't even think you should put a whole bunch of money behind those things within your strategy. There's something to be said about operating that way as organically as you can um, to reach people. But if that is your like main focus, I'm probably pretty concerned about the, your church and the mindset of your church. 
Yeah, I would say that probably a healthy approach to a mission-oriented church would be um, kind of a tandem emphasis on um, being in online spaces because that's where people are going to find you. There's there's people who would never come through your doorways uh, if you weren't live streaming first because they want to see what's going on or you weren't posting online or you didn't have any resources on uh, social media or uh, your website. And then it, then again, there's churches that come across my social media feed because they've sponsored ads where I'm like, man, this church looks like pure marketing. Like that's yeah. really slick. That's more than just like letting me know you exist. Uh, that's like really just a like really you have an entire department dedicated yeah. to marketing. And those, those are concerning to me. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, but I think that there is this healthy balance that you can have of leveraging online platforms, uh, leveraging communication tools, whether that's email, social media, um, depending on the demographics of your city, mailers, um, invite cards, door hangers, you know, all those kinds of like marketing type things. Um, but, uh, that shouldn't be like the end all be all of how you think your church is going to reach people uh, because yeah, those can help serve as primers, uh, but you really need to put an emphasis on personal invitation, yeah. personal evangelism. Yeah. That's how it's really going to happen. But a lot of times the, uh, the personal invite, the personal evangelism uh, can be kind of come in the context of like, there's this a little bit of credibility behind this organization that you're inviting them to you know visit uh, because they know it exists it's kind of a known commodity and they can research and look at it online first before they go and so there's just a there's just a connectivity there that I think in the modern world it would be unwise to not respect uh, it, it yeah. would be to your detriment to not be in those spaces uh, not only to you as like the church leader but to your people who are genuinely yes. trying to reach other people in their life and in the community. Yeah, because even think about what I do, and probably you do this far more than I do. You hear a name of somebody, something interesting, something that you want to check out. Where do you go? I, I you search Google. You immediately yeah. search them. You yeah. try and find a website. And honestly, your website says something about you, too. Like, if it's real confusing, it's not easy to navigate, uh, it looks like real outdated, it says something about you. And... I'm not saying you have to have this premier website that is <laughs> is top of the line and has all this AI attached to it, but you need to have a website that's helpful, that's useful, that um, can give somebody information because that's the first way most people check you out. They're going to look at you from a digital perspective first before they ever actually like walk onto the campus of your church or the building or wherever you're located. That's their first introduction to you is your digital presence. And to completely push that to the side is um, likely to just miss a whole generation of people. Right. Exactly. Because if you don't exist online, for some people, you might as well not exist. Right. And that's not, it's just the way it is. That's just the society we live in. So if you want to reach people in the society that we live in, you know, there's a certain measure you got to play ball in terms of like meeting yeah. people where they are yeah. in the way that Jesus met people where they were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So marketing is kind of like, you know, it's one of those things where sometimes it feels like a necessary evil. Um, sometimes it feels like an evil, uh, but it, it can be used for some good. But then there are some business practices that 
coming to the church that uh, probably should like universally raise eyebrows. And one of those is, uh, particularly in large churches and business-savvy churches, uh, is the use of NDAs, which is short for non-disclosure agreements. And really, NDAs, they be- came into vogue through the tech industry because uh, if you wanted someone to come look at your stuff or, or work for you, you would have them sign a non-disclosure agreement so that you could protect trade secrets so that, you know, if I'm building this piece of technology, you can't come in and steal all my secrets and then sell them to another company or make another company yourself. There's a non-disclosure agreement there. Uh, but when you look at the church, we don't really have any trade secrets. I mean, all of our trade secrets are in the library of books that are bound into the Bible, uh, which is the single most distributed book in the history of books. Like, that's where all our trade secrets are. Um, however, there are churches that sometimes have employees sign NDAs or like non-disparagement agreements, basically an agreement that you can't say anything bad about the church or the leadership in public. And um, some of these are like really narrow, uh, like pertaining to like HR information. Like if you're um, working in finance and you might know who uh, who gives how much or something like that. Or uh, maybe you're working on the health benefit plan and you know that uh, one of the pastors is in therapy. And you know because of their health coverage or however the church takes care of that, you know how often they're in therapy and stuff like that. And so um, that one is, would actually be a violation of HIPAA, I think. Um, so, But that's one of the, the few instances I could see in my searching online of like a legitimate use of an NDA. And even then it doesn't feel necessary. Uh, but then there are more broad and even like sometimes like unilateral NDAs that basically say that when you come to work for the church, you can't say anything about anything once the door closes behind you. And if you do, you get fired. And if you talk bad about us after we fired you, you get no severance. And, um, you know, the, the church can really like threaten legal and financial consequences on you with these NDAs. And like, I feel like a lot of these NDAs, especially these like big megachurch ones, they're legally pretty flimsy because you cannot uh, compel someone to not report abuse or something like that. Um, but the fear of them creates a culture of silence. You know what I mean? Right. And so really, if you want to put a positive spin on it, if you can do your best to do that, uh, you can say they're kind of like anti-gossip measures to keep like church employees from bad mouthing the church and its leadership, you know, for no good reason. Uh, but they can be pretty sketchy, particularly in organizations where there's a toxic leadership culture or there's abuse present. Um, that has been just very just uh, toxic and caustic to people who are uh, at the low end of the totem pole just trying to do the right thing. And, you know, there's actually a long history of this in the church going back as far as like the 1980s where NDAs were used uh, by churches when they were paying out settlements to sexual abuse survivors. And in order to get your money, um, you had to sign the confidentiality agreement. And so that's how they're used. I was trying, I was, I was trying to be as charitable as I could and just like, look at this. The, the best I could find was like this article I'll link to in the show notes uh, by the National Association of Evangelicals, and they gave me some of those ideas about like maybe for HR purposes you would have a narrow one, but like maybe you use them, maybe you don't. They just they didn't seem to give a definitive answer. Um, Tamara, have you seen any, uh, or can you think of any uh, good justifications for a non-disclosure agreement or non-disparaging agreement to be signed by an employee of a church? No. Cool. Next question. <laughs> um, the church shouldn't be using NDAs. I just 
I mean, if you have such fear of gossip, then maybe you're doing maybe something like be wrong. a better like leader. Maybe yeah, don't. <laughs> Maybe don't be so terrible. The reality is you're you're going to have people that are dissatisfied. You're going to have people that are going to, you know, talk bad. Like that's just humans. Those are people within your congregation, whether you are, they're on staff or they're not. Like they're going to say things. You're, uh, they're going to be hurt about a decision you made. Like the reality is you can't please everyone. And it is not for you to control that. Like, I know this is going to sound really cheesy, but this is that's between them and God. Like that, that is for God to care for those things. Like if you are leading out of this place of fear, that even prior to a team member coming on to be on staff, you're having them sign an NDA. Like you're just instilling a place of fear. Like you as a leader are filled with fear of whatever they're going to do, and then they're filled with fear because of the way that you're um, like suppressing them by speaking about anything yeah i tried really hard to think of like okay this is a absolutely um reasonable reason why you would have a church employee sign an nda i honestly maybe there is one email us um i could not find one i could not think of one the only examples and the ones that i gave i'm like i feel like those are covered under other laws yeah yeah um yeah and so I just cannot see a need for them. If you have employees sign NDAs at a church, it's indicative already that your church culture is lacking something. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the same yeah. thing. Like if you're in a congregational uh, governed church and the members start asking to see the church constitution, you are not ha- in a good place in your church culture. Yeah. When we're resorting to legal documents, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. To discuss things, yeah, um, we are we have lost the plot. We are in a bad place, yes. and we need to take a step back. We need to think about this more relationally. Um, and yeah, there are just there are too many instances where NDAs have been used to silence there, people yeah. who have witnessed abuse, who have experienced abuse. Uh, I just don't. There's no upside. I just don't like see who it. Who are the NDAs protecting? The institution, They're the business. They're protecting the business. The business. Yes. Especially and, when it's a big business yeah, with and lots the, of buildings and lots of butts. Right. And the church primarily operating as a business from its relationships with its staff, from, uh, yeah, just all of its aspect. If the lens in which leadership is viewing the church is purely as business, then that's a huge problem. Right. Yeah. So, again, NDAs, no. Anytime you're in a church and you see a legal document and people are talking about the legal document and it it plays big in a conversation, run, do not walk. There's probably something bad going on. Well, you know, I didn't even know churches had legal documents. Like, I didn't know Oh, those yeah, your types church constitution things. is legally binding. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, yeah, there's so many churches have gotten sued by their own members because they right. leadership, you know, supposedly mm-hmm. or in actuality did violate the church's constitution. Yeah. Uh, and that's legally binding. So that's been used against them. Um, yeah, it's wild. It's wild out here. Uh, so when it comes to the business aspects of running a church, there are certainly some things that should be absolutely off the table, like NDAs, like anything that would help to insulate abusers uh, from accusations. Uh, but then there's quite a few things that are fairly morally neutral 
Uh, but it just takes a lot of prudence to know how to apply things in your specific context in a way that is both effective and allows space for the work of the Holy Spirit. You want it to be healthy. You want it to be uh, wise. You want it to be sound. Uh, and you want it to be uh, a space where the Holy Spirit is not hindered, is not quenched uh, by whatever business or legal structure you have created. Uh, because the thing is that we see organizational leadership uh, in the earliest days of the church. I mean, just to give a few examples, I mean, you see Jesus send out the 72 ministers two by two uh, in a very systematic fashion. Uh, like he could have written up like a plan of how to do this. They come back. This is very like systematic training. Or you think about the apostles setting up the system of deacons and acts to make sure that the all of the widows were uh, getting what they needed uh, cared for. Uh, that was a very much a coordinated effort uh, and a lot of leadership stuff happening and organizing and creating an organization around uh, meeting those needs. And you think about the Apostle Paul. This dude was a master fundraiser. Uh, he raised funds for himself. Uh, he also raised funds for uh, the fund for the impoverished uh, people in the Jerusalem church. And so he was passing letters around. He was organizing money. He was making collections. He was having that, that collection transported. There was a lot of things that um, that mirror a lot of the more kind of businessy aspects that we see in the church today. Like there's seeds of that um, that we see in the New Testament church. And certainly in the first century, they didn't have 501c3 certification, but they were using the tools of their time. I mean, they weren't living in a market-driven economy uh, in, with religious liberty. They were living in an, in an empire with religious oppression. And so they contextualize how to do church in that setting. Um, and everywhere it went, it was a little bit different. And so that would be the same for us. So we shouldn't necessarily like um, try to remove ourselves from like all business principles in the church to like somehow make way for something more spiritual. Um, but at the same time, gospel mission and spiritual formation are the prime focuses and no amount of marketing or business acumen uh, will ever become a substitute for that. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse, guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.